0: It's hard to, I think, overstate how important both chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Joshua are to the history of the people of Israel. These are, perhaps we could say, foundational, formative chapters within their, their history and their lineage. Both of these chapters essentially record for us that monumental moment of God's people crossing the Jordan River. And finally, after 40 years of wandering and all of those great tragedies and and triumphs and catastrophes that they saw and experienced, all those years of wilderness wandering, they're finally stepping in to that land that God had promised them. They are, in more ways than one, stepping into a new era. As you see, this moment has essentially been 1,000 years in the making. That's essentially how long it's been since God first spoke to Abraham on that plain, And he spoke to Father Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And a thousand years later, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, are taking, uh, occupying that very land that was promised to them. It is... A monumental moment. All of those promises are coming true. And the people of God are stepping into the land that God had delivered them into. And like any good storyteller though, the storyteller of these two chapters, he sort of lets us sit within the tension. And in fact, it takes two chapters to tell something that is actually sort of passed over very quickly in a lot of ways. He prolongs the tension of the crossing. Here in both of these little sections. And I think it's because he wants us to sort of... He wants the readers, and he, by proxy, he wants us to feel the weight of this moment. If you actually look at the crossing itself, it's somewhat underwhelming. If you look at verse 10 of chapter number 4, it's a simple phrase. It says at the very end of verse 10, the people passed over in haste. And that's it. That's all the details we get, really. <laughs> That's all, uh, all of, of the focus that we get on the crossing itself. and Which is just to say the real importance, the real significance of what's going on. It, it comes in what leads up to and what follows the events of this crossing before and after. And this is especially true as we turn the page to chapter number 4. Where all the attention is given to a bunch of stones. <laughs> The people of Israel were called to collect. And they were called to collect and pile up after they crossed in order to help the people of God to remember. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 4. Notice what we are told. It says, when all the nation." Had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people and from each tribe a man and command them saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodged tonight. Then Joshua called twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off from before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. I think it's incredibly telling that God designates what these stones are. They are a memorial. They are a monument that's meant to get the people in that generation and for generations to come to look and remember what God did. There are dozens, of course, memorials. We can think of that do similar things to us and they're scattered all across these United States. The Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Memorial, the Vietnam Memorial, the, all of the Holocaust museums and whatnot. All of these are meant and they're filled with all kinds of meaning and symbolism and artifacts and all kinds of history. And any memorial, though, any monument you visit... No matter what it looks like, no matter who it's supposed to honor or symbolize, they all have the same purpose. Every monument that you visit, every memorial that you come up to, it's supposed to allow visitors who were not there when whatever particular event was happening to experience both the effects and also the meaning of that event as if they were. When you go to... Some historical site is meant to incorporate you almost into that same event. So you see and you feel all of the same emotions and all of the same feelings and all of the same weight of what happened on that particular place. Kids and families, you know, they walk through memorials and they have really no bearing on what happened all those decades ago. But they're invited by that memorial to grapple with all of the same things that generations before them were grappling with and struggling with. Back in 2015, Natalie and I, we were traveling and we were in St. Petersburg, Florida. And we actually spent some time and visited the Holocaust Museum that's there in St. Petersburg. And it's, it has all these artifacts from all of those horrible atrocities that happened over in Europe. Atrocities that happened to the Jews at the hands of those evil men. And the point of all those artifacts isn't just to make you ooh and ah, it's it's meant to make you feel. It's meant to, to bring your mind back and so you can see and remember what occurred. It's inviting you. Memorials are invitations. To see and know what occurred. And we can think of this memorial. Or if depending on how you read it. Some people read this particular passage. And they think that two memorials were set up. I'm not going to spend time on that. They think that this memorial was set up in the same way. It's an invitation for the people of God. To remember. To be incorporated into that groundbreaking event. Even if they weren't alive when it happened. And what does he want them to remember? Three things I want you to see. Three things that I think God wants these stones to mean. And that by proxy, what he wants us to see in them. Firstly, number one, I think he wants us to remember his presence. He wants us to remember his presence. It's not by action, I think, that within this chapter alone, chapter number four, the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Lord is mentioned some seven times. And in fact, in both chapters, if you combine them, chapters 3 and chapter 4, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned 17 times, over and over again. It's talking about the fact that the people of God had with them the Ark of God. The Ark of Covenant, of course, or as it's called in this particular chapter, the Ark of Testimony, is perhaps the most compelling piece of Israelite history, and that's way before Indiana Jones ever found it. It's very significant to them as a people. In reality, it's perhaps nothing overly special to look at. It's a wooden chest that's been overlaid with gold, and in it has been placed an urn that's full of manna. It's been also within there is the staff of Aaron, and also the the two stone tablets that had God's own handwriting that had written on them the, the Ten Commandments. But more than Just, we could say, a mobile museum of swords. This Ark of the Covenant, what was it? It's It's a visible token of God's presence with God's people. When they carried it, they carried God's presence with them. Or we could say it perhaps more accurately. As they were carrying the Ark of the Lord with them throughout all of those wilderness days, it was the Ark of God, it was the presence of God that was carrying them. And this idea, of course, is brought home even further as Israel's history unfolds. And you see the sort of carelessness that they approach that Ark of the Lord. And it falls into the wrong hands. And it gets traded amongst tribes and nations and and pagan countries. And and when the Ark continually fell into the wrong hands, what is it doing? It's an unmistakable sign. It's an unmistakable sort of demonstration that the people of God had turned their back on the presence of God. Here, though, in this particular instance, it was an unmistakable sign that the people of God uh, had God's presence with them. God was present for them, right here, right in their midst. He was with them. Notice chapter number 3. Look at verse 1. Joshua 3.1 says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from before your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length, Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go for you shall for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before them. Joshua relays all these orders. Orders about the ark, they're supposed to keep a distance. It's a sign of, yes, God's presence with them, but also God's holy presence with them. It's a, a presence that can't be approached by unholiness. And when they saw that ark move, they were to move too. It is a, it's a sign, it's a token. They are following the presence of the Lord. And it was presence that was in them and with them and for them. It was God's presence that had guided them to this particular juncture. You can think about all of those decades, all of those years of wandering and struggle and feeling lost. And feeling all of those years of of griping and complaining and moaning that the people of God spoke to their God. And yet, what do we find here in this particular instance? God was still present with them and for them. God's presence hasn't dissipated. Yes, even after all those times that they complained when they were brought out of Egypt and they were like, I wish we could go back because they had better food back there. All those times when God's people were so frustrating... <laughs> And they kept wavering back and forth between trust and distrust. All of, those, all of that seesawing back and forth. What do we find as constant? It is God's presence with them. He was still their God. He had not abandoned them. He had not cast them off. He had not cast them aside. He had not turned on them, even though many times they had turned on them, even though they were so quick to complain at nearly every juncture. And what do we find happening from God at nearly every turn? He's showing himself who he is. He is the God who is merciful, as it says in Exodus 34, and gracious and slow to anger and a. Bounding in steadfast love. Constantly, he's demonstrating that this is who I am. My presence goes before you because that's who I am. I am a God who is present with you. That's what the ark is. It's an ark of the covenant, of God's covenant presence with them. Look at chapter number 4, verse 10. You can see it as it says here in verse number 10. For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished. That the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded to Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. It's the presence of God that went before them. This is why they approached the banks of that Jordan River. They could have confidence. They could be filled with confidence. Why? Because of who was with them. They were not moving forward in their own capacity, in their own ability. The ark of the Lord was going before the people of the Lord as a sign, as a visible token that all of their hopes, all of their, all of their longings are found and fulfilled in him, the one who was with them. The one who was present in their midst. And as they crossed over... And the stones were put into place as a memorial. The people are called to remember that. God's presence that was with them. No matter what. No matter what they had faced. No matter what had come their way. This memorial stones were meant to serve as a sign. A monument of God's abiding faithfulness for them. Remember God's presence. But also, number two, secondly, remember his power. Remember his power. Because even as the ark was going before them, even as they had that awesome piece of Israelite lore with them, the idea of crossing this Jordan would have proved an almost an impossible notion. If you look at chapter number three, look at verse 15. The, the writer here includes this interesting little parenthetical note. That I think elaborates this point for us. Look at chapter 3 look in verse 15. And he says, as soon as the bear, those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. You see, this was not at all an ideal time to be crossing a river, especially the Jordan." By this time, the Jordan had sort of received extra rainfall, so the water levels were high. But not only that, the water levels were moving fast. There was this no little trickling stream. This was a raging river. And as they approached it, they approached this massive riverbank, and it must have been a sight to behold one that filled them with more than a little bouts of fear. God has told them how they were going to cross. Yes, he's given them a word and that, that says they're going to cross over. But as they approach it, you can't help but imagine some of the people being, we got to go down there a river that was flowing fast and raging and yet notice what God says look at back up to chapter 3 look at verse 11 notice what the word of the Lord says to his people he says behold the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the souls, notice that, when the souls of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. He assures them that when they approach that river, when they put their foot, the, their sole of their foot into that water, is going to separate, it's going to be cut off. The raging river, river would be stilled and a way would be made for them to cross. And I think though it's one thing to be told that, it's quite another thing to believe that, especially again as you approach that riverbank, and that thing is running fast. And yet the priests take the Lord at his word. They barely get their feet wet and suddenly the water is split open, forming as it were two walls of water. Notice verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap. Very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down through the sea of Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly, notice, on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. What a moment. Toes are barely wet and the water separates and forms two massive walls. Literally the word cut off is amputated. God, in effect, amputated the water from being a raging river and allowed it to be a dry desert across the middle of that huge body of water. And I think that's what's amazing. They're not crossing over and trudging through sludge and mud. They are passing on dry ground. You want to talk about power. You want to talk about authority. You want to talk about the might of God on display. He not only makes a river to be cut in half. He makes it to be waterless for his people. This is God's might. His boundless authority. Taking care of everything for his People, The one who spoke nature into existence stops nature and it's tracks. That's how powerful he is. That's how mighty this God is. And this is what he desires the people to remember. Look at verse 6, again, of chapter number 4. Again, notice what he says. Why is this a sign? That this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come. What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel. A memorial forever. An invitation to remember that this is what God can do. This is how powerful Israel's God is. And not just Israel's God. But the God of the whole earth. Did you notice? Look at verse 24. Or let me back up. Verse 23. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. When he dried up for, his, uh, dried up for us and did uh, until we passed over, said all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. All the peoples of the earth are invited to look at this monument of stones and notice this is the power of Yahweh. That's how powerful God is. That's how good he is. His presence goes before them and in power makes a way where there was no way. Those stones that were piled up there are an unmistakable witness to the whole world of the awesome, omnipotent grace of that great God. Grace that Meet people right in their needs, right in their difficulties, right in their anguish and distress. And the awesome part is is the same power that can stop a river and split a sea is the same power that calls you beloved and forgiven. That's how sure it is. When God speaks, nature listens. And yes, when He speaks, it is true. And when He calls you forgiven, it is so. God's word is that sure. His word is that powerful. And that's what He wants His people to remember. He wants them to remember His presence, He wants them to remember His power. But lastly, number three, He wants them to remember His promise. He wants them to remember His promise. Among the details that stand out in this scene, crossing over the Jordan. The one that stands out to me actually occurs in verse number 19. Notice what it says. And the people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month. And they had camped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. Now at first you might be like, what in the world? Why is that important? (laughs) And at first, yeah, there's... Nothing overly impressive about this detail. It's a date. It's just a date on a calendar. But of course nothing is recorded or preserved in scripture by accident. It's not just by happenstance that the historian includes this minor little detail about when they crossed over. And that's certainly the case here because it's not a minor detail. You see on this exact date 40 years earlier to the day. The Lord gave the word to his people to prepare for the first Passover. If you go with me really quick, go to Exodus chapter 12. I want you to see what happens. I want you to see this. It's so cool. Israel, of course, at this time, is in bondage. They are slaves in Egypt. Moses has gone before Pharaoh with Aaron by his side and called for Pharaoh to let the people of God go. And plagues one through nine, they haven't done a thing. They haven't moved or made Pharaoh to budge an inch. They haven't softened his heart. And the tenth plague is announced. The death of every firstborn child and animal across the whole kingdom, the whole realm, the whole domain is going to be afflicted by this horrible, awful plague. But to showcase the power of God and to showcase the presence of God to preserve his people, notice what he promises to do. He promises a way of escape for his people from that decisive plague. Notice verse 3 of chapter number 12. It says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every male shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it, they shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast in its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night... What is seen, this is that institution of the great Passover. God's people are called and take and sacrifice a lamb and smear its blood on the door frames of their houses. And that is what would preserve them from the angel of death. Israel's deliverance here comes by way of blood. You, you see, because after this, Pharaoh finally relents. He is made to feel the weight of this awful plague. His firstborn dies, and he, is, uh, and he is feeling the weight of that. He releases God's people, and they exit. They march out of Egypt, and they march out of bondage, out of tyranny, out of death. And right away, the Passover is instituted as a way for God's people to remember how God made a way for them to be delivered, just as he promised, just as he promised all of the fathers, just as Joseph knew, he knew that this land would not be his final resting place, and that promise to God's people was fulfilled that very night. And it just so happens, quote-unquote, that this first Passover happens within the exact same days that the Jordan was crossed. Again, notice verse 1, Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month. And then notice Joshua chapter number 4 back there in our text Joshua 4, 19, the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. No coincidence. It's not just by accident that God is connecting these things. He's deliberately connecting both events. Because why? Because both in the Exodus and in the crossing of the Jordan, God's people have nothing to do with their deliverance. It is God who is keeping his promises. It is God who is making a way for them. He gives them a word of promise. If you do this, you will be passed over. All they had to do was believe. And by the same token, when they approached the Jordan River, he gives them a word of promise. If you step into those shallow waters, I will separate them from before you. All they had to do was believe. That's all they were responsible for. Putting their trust in the word of God's promise. And that's what those stones are a visual reminder of, that God's promises always come true. Verse 20 again, and those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua said about Gilgal, and he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? And you shall let your children know, Israel, pass over Jordan. On dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. Which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. That you may fear the Lord your God forever. Just as in the days of the Exodus, God's people here are made to see that God's word of deliverance always comes true. It may come to us in a way that's unexpected, that exceeds our understanding, but it always comes true. God is always a promise-keeping God. He never has a word that falls to the ground unfulfilled. All of his words always come true. And those stones that they set up are a memorial, they're a monument for the people to see and know just that. As a way for God's people to remember God's presence and his power and his promise as the one who is their one true deliverer. And future generations could look at it and know and ask their granddaddy, what do those stones mean? Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you what our God did. Let me tell you what he has accomplished. And you see, this is what happens every single time we step through that threshold into church too. Everything we do here as a church is a living memorial, if you will. An active testimony that invites every sinner and saint to participate by faith in the remembrance of God's deliverance in Christ. Even though we weren't there for it. (laughs) We weren't there when Jesus rose from the grave on the third day, leaving sin and death behind him. But Sunday after Sunday, what is the point? What are we doing here? We are invited to remember the life-giving announcement as if we were there. Because it's just as true now as it was then. And it's just as true now as it will be a thousand years from now. We are called here, we are invited here into this place that serves as a living testimony to what? God's power and presence and promise. He is the one who is the true and better Passover lamb, who has sacrificed himself for us is the good news of what we have not as just stones but as this verse is amazing you have to turn there turn to first peter and see this we have the living stone 1 Peter chapter number 2, look at verse 4, notice what Peter says, As you come to him, he says, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture. Behold I am laying in Zion a stone. A cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We my friends if you belong to the church. Not just this church but to the church by faith. You are a part of a people who are a living memorial that is built upon the living stone of the Christ of God. And it is Christ's presence that went before us in the waters of death. And whose power went before us over sin and death that made a way for us to enjoy his promise of eternal life forever. That's what we have in Jesus, the living stone. You see... For us here this morning, our memorial forever is a cross which stands as the emblem of our deliverance and our redemption. And every time we gather, every time we assemble in this place and we open God's word in front of us, we are made to rejoice in the word of God in the present. The Bible not only calls us to remember God's past acts of deliverance, It invites us to recognize that God in Christ is still in the business of delivering sinners from bondage and death. He's still in the business of bringing them into newness of life through his death and resurrection. It's a good news announcement that's right here, right now. He was not only faithful then, he's faithful right now. The, the testimony of the Lord is just that. The stones are not just, remember what happened a long time ago. Remember what happened by a Lord who is, still is. He's a God of the past, present, and the future. And all of what he is for his people is right now true for you this morning. His presence, his power, and his promise for us are still going forth in the living present. And that's what we are made to rejoice in. As Sunday after Sunday, we repeat almost the same moment of the people of Israel. And people are like, what does this mean? What are we doing? What are we doing here in this church? And we can say, let me tell you what my God did. Let me tell you about his presence. About his power and about his promise. That's what we do. That's why we can rejoice. That's why we can sing in Christ alone. And oh, but God, because we can remember what he did. May God always keep this place. A place where that message goes forth. A place where that message goes forth. Unbridled, unadulterated. Unhindered by opinion, unhindered by platforms, may we always come here and rejoice in answering what do these stones mean? What does this word mean? It means that there is a God who is for you. That's what it means. And that's what we rejoice in this morning.